The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 11. If you have brought your Bibles, you can open on up. I don't know if it's printed in the bulletin. It's not, so your Bible is the only way that you can check to make sure that Matt preaches the right text. (laughs) That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light 
but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you that uh, have the ESV, I'm going to guess Brian was reading from the NIV. And it's totally fine. No, for, I mean, it gives us better perspective on the Greek text. As soon as I hit atoning sacrifice instead of propitiation. Yep, that's yep. just fine. <laughs> None of us are reading it out of the Greek. It's fine. Although there are several in the audience that probably had to translate the whole book in seminary. Yes? Yep, me too. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you're familiar with the Bible, this might sound a little bit like John chapter 1. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're familiar with the Bible, this might sound like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. If you're familiar with the Bible, this might sound a little bit like Revelation. Chapter 21, I ran out of uh, bookmarks. Chapter 21, verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. C.S. Lewis said it is not only light that I'm paraphrasing, calms us. It is by the light we see everything else. God is not light as in the sun. God is light as in purity and holiness and the one who created the sun. Some of you like sunshine more than others. Perhaps you're sitting in it intentionally right now. Some of you need sunshine. Connecticut can be a challenging place in its grayness occasionally. In 1998, I went to a conference and a pastor spoke named Crawford Loritz. He pointed something out that um, was in the Greek, though I didn't know it at the time. I was studying Greek, but I hadn't read it. This verse has a series of negatives in it, which is why um, the NIV and the ESV translated a bit differently. And Crawford had a deep voice. I think he was a big man, but I don't know. I've never met him. It's a big conference, you know. And he said, it's a little bit more like this. In him, there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all. He's a different style of preacher than me. The hair on the back of your neck goes up a lot more often when he preaches. I'm more of an explainer. Some of you appreciate that. Others, not so much. Here's the thing. The reason I tell you that 
John's a challenging writer. This is both the man, I'm convinced, not all scholars agree on this, I'm convinced this is the one who wrote the Gospel of John, who reclined on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, who wrote the book of Revelation. One of the reasons I'm convinced is the Greek's very similar. If you look at the letters in the book of Revelation and compare them to 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and look at the grammar in the Gospel of John, they're very, very, very similar. And you can tell in the English. You don't have to study Greek to be able to tell that. Look at the letters of the, in the Revelation, the letters to the churches, and then look back at 1st John and you make up your own mind. But I think John was a challenging preacher to listen to. He was also called a son of thunder. Because after going out and talking to people about the kingdom, some people didn't listen to him. And he and his brother wanted to rain fire on them. This isn't really a letter in the same way that Paul's letters are letters. In the way that Peter says to the elect exiles... James is pretty clearly writing to the Jerusalem church and expecting it to go out from there. John just jumps right in. In my ESV study Bible, it's described as more like a pamphlet than a letter. I'm not positive that I love that word, but I loved reading that because it helped me. We assume he's writing to probably those same seven churches because he pastored them that are mentioned in the beginning of Revelation. In what we would now call Turkey, at the time Asia Minor, And he is preaching to them. He's talking about theology. He's talking about lived theology, as in how you treat people is the ultimate evidence to yourself and to others of what you believe, right? We got that from what he was saying, even as he's he's being pushy. He says, it's not a new commandment. Well, it is a new commandment. That's sermonically pushing on us to understand the point that he's making. But the the point of the letter, not the purpose, I'll talk about that in a minute, the point of the letter is God is light. He doesn't need the balance of a moon god like a lot of religions. He doesn't need explanation beyond that because he is the explanation if he exists. This is no capricious, powerful god like Baal or Moloch or the Roman or Greek gods. This is the God who has always existed, who not only is light, is the only being that is light and created all things and maintains them in this very moment. You're enjoying it, right as I say that. Not sure from where you're sitting if you can hear the water. Love the Sundays where it rains hard Saturday before. The water's louder. I don't love when airplanes fly over, but I understand that's the world. I love seeing the wind. These are the effects that we see of not only the fact that God is light, but that he created the world and continues to maintain it. The earth continues to spin because he willed it and continues to will it. And that is why John is writing, though that's not what he's trying to accomplish. The foundation of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John is verse 5. I would encourage you to look around. Notice the wind. If it, there it goes. There we go. 
you can hear or see the water. These are evidences to our eyes of who God is. They're a blessing. God is light, and this completes our joy. That's the purpose. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He considers himself part of these seven churches. He pastored them and wrote to them. He had an apostolic ministry to them that he's referencing in verses 1 through 4. He's expecting them to already know that they're known by God, that they are loved by him, that they are accepted by him, that they're seen by him, that they're forgiven, found, liked, freed, guided by the light of verse 5. What then completes the joy? What's he talking about? And this is where we get to do some theological work to understand John because we didn't get to listen to him preach like these churches did. What completes your joy? And by complete, I don't mean get 100% on a test. I mean like a, tra- like a bank transaction. There are two different Greek words, but both of them mean to finish a process. Plerao and teleo, in case you wonder if I actually know what I'm talking about. Double check me on that. We hear the word perfect or complete, and we can think, I got 100% on a test. And that's fine. That's our language. What John is talking about is a maturation process that doesn't end with you never sinning again, but you're actually mature now. Here's what completes your joy if you're a follower of Christ and what completes mine. Acting like we believe what we say we believe, which mostly has to do with how we treat other people. John's not talking about salvation. The conditionals, he gives a bunch of conditions in here, right? The conditionals are sermonic. They're not theological. You guys are smart. You can hang with me here. He's not saying you're not saved if you don't treat people well. He's saying if you're saved, treat people well, and that completes your joy. And he's saying it in a pushy way with conditionals. If we say this but act like this, we make Jesus a liar. Can you make Jesus a liar? Do you have that kind of power? No, But if you say you're a follower of Jesus and you treat people poorly, what does that look like to that person and the other people? It doesn't reflect who he is, who he calls you, and how he calls you to act and behave. That which was from the beginning, referencing Genesis 1, which we have heard, immediately jumping ahead to the first century life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth that John was a witness of, all of the people reading this letter or hearing it knew that, and they're being, they're being reminded. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. A Greek-thinking person would be driven absolutely bananas by John because they believed in a separation of the logos and the flesh. The word was a good idea and beautiful, and, and there was, they had some concept even of holiness through rationality, and it's entirely different from the flesh. And if you've read John chapter 1, not 1 John, but it's very, 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 very similar, which is why I think it's the same author and the beloved disciple. He talks for 13 verses about the beauty of the Logos, drawing in a Greek thinking person. And then he said, 
The word became flesh. Sarx. Greek word. He was an actual human being who lived in real space and time. And hundreds of people both saw him during his earthly ministry and after he rose from the dead. And John is reminding them of this fact. And you're like, I, why is he reminding of the, that fact? He expected that when we're reminded that this is not a religion of ideas only, it's not a religion of commands only, it is a religion of Jesus who lived, died, rose from the dead. People saw that happen. They witnessed it. They wrote it down. You could interview them for decades, and many, many, many people did. I was talking with a, a friend who is not a Christian, and she said, isn't this just people's under perceptions or understandings of God? I was like, oh, no. No, no. We can trace it back. We know mostly who wrote all of these things and how they started getting passed around in the first century. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, which I think is, is an interesting proof of the reliability of the scriptures because it reminds us that we know most of who wrote everything else. And it's okay that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We know that in the first century, that letter was passed around regularly to help us understand that we no longer need someone to mediate between us and God. Now I'm preaching on Hebrews instead of 1 John. I'm going to stop that. John also expected that being reminded of the evidence of Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, would encourage your heart and settle it. Some of you long to be more assured that you're his and he is yours forever. That's part of the purpose of John's writing. He expected that when you're reminded of Jesus' life and that it was verifiable at the time and still is through the now written witnesses, that would give you assurance that you're his and he's yours. What Christians like to call saved, what Paul called being in Christ, what Jesus called experiencing the kingdom is yours. And you're like, okay, how do I sense that? How do I know that? Act like a Christian. Act like you love your neighbors. You're like, but I don't feel like I love them. The Bible's idea of love is much bigger than that. It includes feelings. Love is both feeling and a move of the head and a move of the very being. I was talking with a good friend this week who's a pastor about how challenging it is, but worthwhile, to take people at their word when they say words to us, especially those close with us. Some of you know this about me, and it's interesting to you. Very instinctive person. And those instincts, every year I come to rely on them less and less. They're just not that great. What's a lot better is hearing your words and then responding to them. One of our sound techs is nodding his head. You, can you, can ne you could never hit the mute button again. Can I get an amen from the sound people? Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I... Make their lives a lot harder than I mean to. John is reminding of the life and ministry resurrection of Jesus because the verifiability of it was to encourage their hearts, also because it's internally satisfying through comforting us that his words are true and we can rely on them. It's also community creating. If his mixing of the pronouns 
is challenging to you when he says you and our, it's because he considers himself part of that community. God is so good, he not only gives us light and life through a trusting relationship with Jesus, who is the propitiation, and the NIV explains that word instead of giving it to us. How does it say it? Atoning sacrifice, terrific definition of propitiation. He not only gives us that, which is really good news, he also gives us a community. You're like, I don't always want community. That's because you're tired because community is so imperfect and is actually one of the proofs that you need it. And I do too. God is light. This completes our joy when we walk in that light. When John is speaking conditionally, he's not explaining how salvation works. He's pushing on us to act like we believe these things. What's at stake? In all of the conditions at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, what's at stake? Your joy and mine. The settledness that comes with acting like a Christian is what's at stake, not your salvation. Your salvation is secure because him who gives it is God. But there's a lot of joy that we're leaving on the table when we sin. That's what John's pushing on. One of our beloved elders passed away a year and a half ago, loved to quote 1 John chapter 2 in explaining the benefits of confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So right now your sins are forgiven, but forgiveness as a way of life completes your joy. That's why we do it. It's one of the things that Christians do that I think looks odd to the outside world, and that's fine, because it's how we get our sense of release from the times that we've hurt others, which, by the way, always harms the community. That's another reason John uh, goes back and forth between second person and third person pronouns. When you lie, it harms the community. When I am unkind, it harms the community. What do we do about it? We learn to live in light of these pushy conditionals and commands daily. We learn to live lives of repentance, which are lives of life. This is the word that Paul loves. This is not bios. It's not like your heart's going to keep beating if you trust Jesus. It's you're going to flourish here on earth It is possible. We reflected on that in our call to worship, that there is good in the land of the living, and it is found in trusting Jesus and then acting like we trust Jesus with others and how we treat them. And don't miss the expectation. I don't think you missed it, but maybe you did. John is expecting that you're growing up as a follower of him. I'm just going to be real straight with you. I've gotten a lot better at not making racist jokes. Not recently. More like from junior high on. Just me? I'm the only one that ever thought of those? I'm getting a lot better at not making coarse jokes. And I'm so relieved. Then I get upset with other people for making them. Played golf with some friends, and there weren't very many. 
because one of the other guys was a pastor. So if you play golf with like 50% of the people are pastors, people are on their best behavior. <laughs> I don't grab my kids anymore unless they're running into traffic, which they don't do anymore because they're 15 and 12. That's a way that I'm growing up. I still have to repent to my kids. Good grief. Is there anything more humbling, parents? Repenting to our kids. I don't repent to my infant son yet because he doesn't talk. I mean, he talks, but I don't understand what he's saying. He is telling me to repent. It's okay that he doesn't want to nap as long as I would like for him to nap. Forgive me, Micah. Are you growing? John is fully expecting that you are. Through corporate worship and all that happens indirectly, through your loved ones who tell you how they can, how you can love them better and then you do it, through repenting of your disproportionate emotions. You know what that means, right? Like you realize you're sometimes in the moment, usually later, we realize we were about three times more mad than we were. If we're really having a great day, we know why, but most of the time we don't know why. But if we took that out on somebody, we say to them, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm going to try more in the future. Because I preach these things to you guys, they're on my mind all the time. I was repenting to my 15-year-old a couple weeks ago, and she was like, Dad, you're too hard on yourself. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. Okay, thanks. Obviously, she's forgiven me or she wouldn't say that. And she meant it. She wasn't just trying to get out of the conversation and play Minecraft, though she was also doing that. <laughs> What's on the line? I want you to understand First John chapter 1 and half of chapter 2. Is your salvation on the line by not acting like a follower of Jesus? No. What's on the line? Your joy. Verse 5, informing verse 4, and then all the conditionals and pushy preaching and writing of 1 John is that we, my friends, act like followers of Jesus. Which is what abiding is. Abiding is um, salvation plus persevering. And persevering sounds like work. That's why abiding is such a better word. But it does, need to, it does involve our will. How about joyful obedience? Saved plus joyful obedience is what abide means. But the word's passive. And it's so important. It's so important that we learn that we actually can rest in the finished work of Christ. And what that means is speak peace to our heart from his peace and then love the neighbors that God puts into our life. Here's a way of summarizing one of John's points that's going to come up over and over. We're going to go through all three of his letters, or pamphlets, if you will, this summer. There's nothing that you do as a Christian that is more profound for your own heart and for the world than obedience. It, merits, it does not merit you anything. We're not talking about salvation, right? Salvation is Jesus pursued you, you responded and put your faith in him, you're good. But your joy also involves obedience now. There is no prayer that is more kingdomly profound than choosing to tell the truth and avoid exaggeration, lying, or silence when you know that your words are necessary. There's no amount of fasting or Bible study that compares in the kingdom 
to rejecting our natural tendency to greed and choosing generosity instead. And wisdom, what to do with our stuff. There is no amount of Christian service that is more kingdomly profound or better for your heart than avoiding gossip and triangulation in your family and in your church and in your small group. I said this before, but I want to say it again. You can actually be mature as a Christian. That's the hope. John is not as interested in in filling you with hope as Peter is. John isn't as interested in explaining salvation as Paul is. John is interested in you learning to love the people in your life and especially your spiritual community. It has been said that Peter is the apostle of hope, Paul of faith, and John of love. says the word love a lot because he knows that there's joy available to you that you're not enjoying right now by not treating everyone around you with love. I love that he writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. At the same time, it's a new commandment. (laughs) Some of you would have loved John as a preacher. Thunderous and loving. I think as disciples go, he was the most like David. Passionate and also very loving. It's the same God and the same gospel as in the Old Testament, but now we have a face to it, which is Jesus. And we have a new clarity and hope about today and the future. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all. And because of Jesus, that light is yours today and eternally. Believe that, remember that, believe and trust that, and then act like it's true and you're relating to others. I think is John's point. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if I've represented the text well, I ask that we would all remember it, first and foremost, myself. And where I have not represented it well, Lord, let those words fade and send us back to your word. We are so thankful that we have 1 John to remind us of the profound importance of following you as best we can. Please remind us, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. Amen.